the most down to earth, one of the nicest guys you ever can see in the WWE. 234 pounds from Mayberry, O.B. Taylor. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Following roughly your division requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown as team in front of a live studio audience. everyone and welcome to episode 138 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winson. And today, going to be looking at one of those C slash D shows that I don't cover on a regular basis, but I kind of like and I said I kind of want to get back to a little bit. And this would be WWF Mania from May 8th, 1993. Certainly at a point where they were still trying for that particular program. Certainly it only debuted in January of that year. Just like Monday Night Raw, except only one of them, I guess, would stand the test of time going forward. This show was actually a request of somebody. I don't have their name, but they asked, I guess, JT Rosero of Place to Be Nation first, and he passed it along to me, knowing that I review episodic wrestling, and this would be right in my wheelhouse. So to whoever it was that requested it, I hope you're listening, because I don't even know if you actually listen to the program, but there's certainly enough interesting stuff and matchups some really weird matchups on this show which i'll get to in a moment but first let me get in my plugs you can email the show greensmountain at gmail.com facebook.com slash greensmountain give me a follow on twitter at gf allentown pod that is at gf allentown pod and you may be listening to the show on the pro wrestling only feed and you can listen to other shows on the pro wrestling only feed the bigfoot pro wrestling podcast looking at independent wrestling from the pacific northwest days of thunder 1998 WCW through the lens of WCW Thunder, although they did have a special episode last Thursday centering around Eddie Guerrero. And, of course, WorldCast, which really reviews world-class championship wrestling, but they've been doing a lot of jumping around because of certain things that have appearing been appearing on the WWE Network. And I'm very happy about this Mid-South drop that is apparently going to be happening because finally, finally... I can do that freaking show from November of 1985 where Ric Flair faces Ted DiBiase, and out of it, Ted DiBiase turns babyface and becomes the number one guy in Mid-South from that perspective. I've been waiting for two and a half years to do that, and it's something that I think gets blocked when it gets posted to YouTube, so you just never actually see it on there. So I am looking forward to that. I had also mentioned how, oh, I want to do more C and D shows, and I had put this up on Twitter earlier in the week because... There's an ad for All-American Wrestling during this show, and I tweeted out that I wish I had watched All-American when it was on in 93, even though I wasn't watching the product. should have just watched that just to learn comedy from Mean Gene and Bobby Heenan just standing in front of a big screen all across America. I mean, hell, it's a hell of a lot better than that where in the world is Matt Lauer bit that the Today Show used to, oh, wait, he's in his rape dungeon, Uh, allegedly, of course, but anyway. A more brighter topics. I, I am now in my third week in my new job, and I have to admit, it, it feels really strange to actually like my job so far. Now, 
I'm basically like a basketball player on the bench right now, just kind of waiting to get into the lineup because it, for what I do, I have to learn the software and all the ins and outs of it. And I'm going to be loading data, I guess, for clients to kind of get a grip from that end of it. But I've just loved everything that's been thrown at me. I love being in a small office after years of working in these giant banks where nobody knows who you are. You just kind of float through. I mean, you could disappear if you wanted to, but that was never anything that I really desired to do. And, you know, the pressure was on every single day with, you know, nav production and that sort of thing. I don't want to go too far down the mutual funds rabbit hole, but I certainly like what I'm doing now a hell of a lot better. In spite of the fact that my commute is taking, on average, about an hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes each morning, which is perfectly fine because we are now in an era of Google Maps directing me the right way. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't know all these back roads through Sudbury, Massachusetts that I can take to shave seven minutes off my commute, which doesn't sound like much, but at this time of year in Sudbury, there's some good foliage, I mean, excuse me, foliage (laughs) i caught myself unlike marge simpson and it's a very scenic drive a classic country new england and i'm on my way to work at a place that i like wait pete does anybody really want to hear me gush over how happy i am right now usually people tune into podcasts to hear how miserable everybody is and complain about service dogs and airplanes and stuff like that but yeah sometimes getting home sucks because it's now getting dark at 6 o'clock at night, and uh, I don't know what we can do about that because, as I've mentioned before, I am against changing the clocks in all its forms, except for my plan to the next—actually, when we set the clocks back, this is the next opportunity to do that. We just set it back 20 minutes, and we leave it there because it just it, it says, okay— Canada, feel free to match us, the rest of the world, because they want to line up with the New York stock market. It's clock imperialism, as I've talked about in the past. Also, I've been watching a little bit more wrestling this week. I watched that NWA Power show over the weekend that aired last Tuesday. And as I tape this, it's Tuesday, and I've missed the one for tonight, but I'll I'll be checking that out in due course. I particularly enjoyed it. I, I love the little personality profile on Tim Storm. It instantly made me care about the guy, you know, being up there in age. And plus, I, I love all athletes at this point who are older than me. I know that there's a lot of WWE guys who are still older than me. I mean, AJ Styles is, but... That is kind of who I like to root for. Zidane Chara, Tom Brady, they're all older than me. There's not very many of them left. Adam Vinatieri, who I believe was born during the Spanish-American War in terms of athletes. But wrestlers, they, they they can actually hit their prime in their early 40s and still have good years. I mean, how old was Nick Bockwinkle in the mid-80s when he was still having classics? He was over 50 years old at that point. So I don't know where I'm actually going with this thought, but... I also saw today that Eric Bischoff was replaced as the executive producer of SmackDown. I don't even know exactly what he did, and apparently the rumor is, oh, he just hung out at catering, which, I don't know, if if you want to do that, that's fine, but... Man, that Eric Bischoff had the shortest executive career since Pope John Paul I. <laughs> Maybe I should start more podcasts with a Johnny Carson-style monologue where I talk about current events. <laughs> I mean, the Eric Bischoff thing is so insane. Like, yeah, could you move to Connecticut? And then two months later, they fire him. Oh, it's 
It's just amazing. But anyway, back to WWF Mania for May 8th, 1993, Saturday morning on the USA Network. And these are the type of shows that I really like, not just because it's a C and D show, but it also covers other stuff. So I feel like I'm getting the main points of Superstars and Wrestling Challenge and even Monday Night Raw is thrown in. And then... In early 93, you still have these Mania exclusives, and I'm holding up quotation marks because it's the only way that you would see some of these matches, such as Bam Bam Bigelow taking on Kamala in this one, which was supposed to be on WrestleMania 9, but got cut for time for whatever reason. So I, I kind of like these shows. It's also a, a, a chance to look at Todd Pettengill, which I know is a very strange thing to say, but... Sometimes when I've watched these shows with him in retrospect, I think, well, I, I kind of like him. I, I kind of understand what he's doing. And then at other times, like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is why I hated Todd Pettengill at the time, and he was just such a turnoff for, for everything. Here on this show, well, it leans more in one direction than the other. But it made me wonder why the hell I didn't just do All-American. <laughs> I mean, it's the same time frame. I would have gotten the Heenan and Oakland stuff. I, I love the comedic bits, but, eh, you know, sometimes I have to watch things that I'm not going to enjoy as much. And uh, I guess that would be Todd Pettengill on this one. But luckily, the menu of matches on this is certainly enough to keep anybody's interest. Yes, uh, Shawn Michaels on Monday Night Raw defending the Intercontinental title against Hacksaw Jim Duggan. 1993 Hacksaw Jim Duggan. But let us not forget, Sean and Hacksaw are linked in a very specific way. I'll get into that when that match comes around. Mr. Perfect taking on Doink in a King of the Ring qualifier that... Uh, some very interesting things come out of that match, and I'm not talking about how those two guys are also linked. We get a Mr. Hughes match for some reason as well, because he's there, and we got to put him on TV. But maybe the strangest match of them all, Bob Backlund returned as a babyface late 1992, loses at WrestleMania to Razor Ramon in about three minutes, I believe like his first pinfall loss in the WWF. He's taking on... The narcissist Lex Luger, so a battle of two former world champions, if you roll in Lex's WCW reign between 91 and 92. So, without any further ado, why don't we just get right to it for WWF Mania for May 8, 1993. The Lakers with a two-point lead over Phoenix. KJ out on top, here's his drive into the basket. In deep, bounce it out to Marley. Marley! Finally, Phoenix broke free and escaped defeat. I pulled those clips for the bumpers to provide commentary on a sporting event that had happened, something in politics, history, what have you. But I had completely forgotten, so this jogged my memory. The Phoenix Suns in the NBA playoffs, which had just started in 93, in May, it was actually on this weekend, Game 5, Suns fell down 2-0 at a best of five to the Lakers and had to win three straight to advance, despite being the best team in the league all year. And as it turned out, it probably burned them later on because they may have run out of gas a little bit against the Chicago Bulls. They lost three home games in the final. And I know how horrifying it can be for a team to lose three home games in a championship final series. Believe me, it absolutely still crushes me even months later. 
In basketball, around that time, guys are starting to wear the longer shorts, and socks were not coming up to dudes' knees anymore. Uh, they were a little bit more stylish, at least, at least a little bit more modern-looking. Which brings us to Todd Pettengill, who is wearing shorts on the WWF Mania set for this episode, and high-ish socks, probably comes up to about mid-calf. I don't know if he's going to go out... <laughs> rowing or whatever like he's wearing rowing socks or something like that he reminds us that mother's day is the next day so that's going to be a recurring bit going on and he's going to throw it to an interview with bam bam bigelow from superstars and the sensational sherry who is a baby face remember because she got a mirror broken across her face by Shawn Michaels, when Marty Jannetty showed up back in October of 92, that was an episode I covered back around episode 102. Do check that out in the archives. So she's there to confront Bam Bam and ends up on her knees. But before you get any ideas, no, this is not like that Royal Rumble thing with the Ultimate Warrior where she was basically offering to perform oral on the Warrior. Here, she ends up on her knees because she's being berated by Bam Bam Bigelow before Tatanka makes the save on her behalf, including a dropkick on the platform, which I thought was really strange. You come out and attack a guy, and you throw a dropkick on a platform. But okay, a little strange, but that's fine. He also does a dive off the platform, which is a little bit more traditional these two guys bigelow and tatanka definitely liked working with each other not only their feud through 1993 but also when tatanka joins the million dollar corporation please you know hear the disgust in my voice given how well that turned out tatanka and bam bam were teaming up a lot and that's because they were good pals now later on on that episode of superstars Tatanka is making the way, making his way to the ring for his match, but fortunately, he's laid out in the hallway. Hey, you know me, I'm all for hair angles, whether it's the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant, and Pez, uh, I mean, Shaska Watley, or the Heenan family on Andre, doesn't matter what it is, it's it's something that's always going to grab my attention, and now I could take this little clip and throw it into my upcoming special best of haircuts, because I think I've done enough of them now to fill out a show for an hour if I wanted to just repurpose content, but I probably can't use this for quite a few weeks. So Tatanka, it's supposedly some sort of magic hair. I, I, I'm not sure how that works in his particular tribe. But one thing in haircut angles that I'm always interested in is how do they get the scissors there? And Bam Bam happened, he's in a hallway, so it's not like he can open a desk drawer and there's scissors. No, he had it in his boot. So this was premeditated. It's kind of like Shaska, of course, had his scissors in his back pocket, which is a little strange that he would have been walking around with that. But I already explained all that. It was Manchurian Candidate and a lot of brainwashing, that sort of thing. All right, here's the deal with Tatanka. He is okay. He's a little light in the hair department, if you know what I mean. Speaking of uh, light in the hair department, Russ, over my left shoulder, can you get a shot of Anthony? (laughs) 
Thank you for that illustration. See, I don't like that one bit because I'm a 40-year-old man and luckily I haven't started balding as of yet or even really turning gray except for that weird spot in my beard. But there, but for the grace of God, goes any of us. So why don't you keep your mouth shut there, Pet Gill? I mean, I'm not so sure about that head of hair of yours. It looks a little too perfectly coiffed. I don't know what Pet and Gill looks like now, but you know, it's like Brutus Beefcake's promo from WrestleMania Four. You know, the one where Gene says package and all that stuff. At the end, he concludes like talking about haircuts. Oddly enough, it says it could happen to you. And with that in mind, let's go to our Mania exclusive match, which it features two bald guys, Kamala and Bam Bam Bigelow. And our announced team for this one is another new one to Greetings from Allentown. It's Gorilla Monsoon and The Wizard, which is not to be confused with King Curtis Iakea, the screaming manager from 86 WWF, and certainly as far away from the Grand Wizard of the early 80s, late 70s in WWF. No. The Wizard was a Bruce Pritchard persona, which was never shown on TV. 93, they seem to be, you know, just using up all the Pritchard personas. Oh, The Wizard and Rio Rogers. Yep, both of those were in 1993. Very, very short-lived and definitely no relation to the Fred Savage movie of the same name, The Wizard. Somebody was trying to tell me, oh, Ben Savage is better than Fred Savage. It's like, oh, okay, you mean... The one-hit wonder who did Boy Meets World, which isn't even that good, okay? Sorry, folks. Maybe it's because I was born in 79 and I was a little bit too old for that and more in line with the Wonder Years. But Ben Savage isn't even that much younger than me. He didn't do anything other than that. Fred Savage, meanwhile, did The Wizard, Princess Bride, The Grinder, which was a very underrated show on Fox, but unfortunately got canceled. I have no idea why. But Gorilla... Referring to what the wizard is wearing, which does us no good because they don't actually show him. And anyway, let's just talk about the guys in the ring. Kamala, who had been shown the light by the Reverend Slick. But Slick isn't there anymore, and this is his first time out there without Reverend Slick. Or so says the wizard. I mean, can you really believe what Bruce Pritchard says on a regular basis? Although he did get Eric Bischoff's job running SmackDown, so who who knows, really? I mean, I guess wrestling podcasts are the path to glory, I guess. Why why is this Bruce? And I, I, you know what? I'm not even going to call him Wizard because this character is so terrible. Why is it just not Bobby Heenan? I mean, who knows? Like, we have to break up Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. Like, who's the person? May have been Vince. I don't know who. It's like, yeah, we can't have Gorilla and Heenan together on commentary anymore. They suck. Yeah. Like, was there anybody who really felt that way? This match, by the way, was taped on May 4th in Worcester, Massachusetts. So not very long before this. And it was not at the Worcester Centrum, now known as the DCU Center. It was taped at the Worcester Memorial Auditorium, where Bob Backlund had numerous title defenses because Centrum didn't open until 1982. That building... The auditorium, I may have mentioned this on a podcast in the past, it built 1933 as a monument to World War I veterans. And there's, I guess, redevelopment coming around that building. Worcester is getting a minor league baseball team. They're building a stadium, and they're, they're paying for it with public funds. Stealing the Pawtucket Red Sox from Rhode Island, I might add. But because it is a monument, it can't be torn down. But they have used that building for SWAT training of police so not the Samoan SWAT team like actual SWAT training is 
Bam Bam Bigelow, he char- he attacks early, but then misses a charge and does a flare flip in the corner, which is very unusual for a man of his carriage. Out on the floor, Kamala controls for a little bit, but then back inside, Bam Bam just throws Kamala back out of the ring and then into the ring steps. I can tell listening to Gorilla, and this goes back to the, why the hell can't you just have Gorilla and Heenan, because Heenan is doing color commentary on other matches. Why, (laughs) Gorilla just seems a little disengaged, and I think he misses his pal, quite frankly. It's kind of a sign that, you know, the golden age of the WWF, people consider it as being 84 to 92, some say 85 to 91, whatever it is, you can kind of demarcate it by when Gorilla's play-by-play starts to suffer. Was he the greatest play-by-play guy in the world? No, but as somebody who was to introduce a kid to the world of wrestling, there's hardly anybody better than Gorilla Monsoon. And that's why I'm glad that I grew up during that era. This match is very punchy-kicky, so there's not a lot to go on here. And both dudes... I realize, as they're doing this, it came up through Memphis. Kamala had the vignettes where it was kind of a Jerry Lawler idea for the Kamala character. And Bam Bam Bigelow had a big angle in 86 as one of the guys going after Jerry Jerry Lawler. Basically, that's a rite of passage in wrestling for any anybody. You have to go after Jerry Lawler at some point. And Kamala and Bam Bam slug it out. Kamala hits a headbutt. The Bam Bam then answered, he hits a falling headbutt twice, and now the Wizard and Gorilla discuss the King of the Wing, King of the Ring, King of the Wing. (laughs) I won King of the Wing the time at Buffalo Wild Wings that I ate 42 wings, but the qualifying matches that are coming up and why Bret Hart has been exempted from it, it's because of the way (laughs) he lost the world title at WrestleMania 9. Bigelow goes up top. But Kamala, rather than slamming him off there, I don't know why I was expecting that spot, he just goes over and shakes the rope. And Bam Bam, he does the crotch spot that you'd see Shawn Michaels and other guys do where he lands on the top rope. But, man, he was not careful about it all. He's like nuts first, bunzai onto the top rope. And he crotches himself pretty bad. Get a clothesline, and he is sent to, into the turnbuckle by Kamala. He gets a splash to the, as he falls into the center of the ring on his stomach, Kamala hits a splash to the back of Bam Bam. And yes, this is the time period where Kamala, despite being a professional wrestler for the better part of a decade, does not know to turn the guy over, even though he had done it on his own plenty of times in 86 and 84 and every other time that I've seen him. It's one thing about his character that I don't understand. Yes, he always had a manager. But they didn't make a point of having the manager always say that he had to flip the guy over. But what he does is he actually flips Bam Bam over. But instead of doing the 180, he does a 360 and Bam Bam ends up right on his back again. Somebody needed to teach Kamala like an STF. That would have been awesome. If like, well, he doesn't know how to do the pen because he was actually hooking the leg at the same time. Almost like he was going for an STF. But you know what that means. Now, you got Kamala being portrayed as the stupidest babyface and possibly racist, you could you could say. Now, Bam Bam takes advantage as Kamala is jibber-jabbering with the referee, gets a roll-up like it's a 2015 Raw, and picks up the win. And one kid in the crowd is very upset about Kamala losing to Bam Bam Bigelow. 
I'd like to think, though, that he found out that Bam Bam had a superior theme song in 87 and 88 with that sweet jazz saxophone and that he just hates the Bam Bam theme and has a visceral reaction to it the same way I do. Referee's trying to tell him what's going on here, but in the meantime, from the backside, Bam Bam rolls him up and gets a three count. What a miscarriage of justice. I'm not sure how it's a miscarriage of justice when he just doesn't know the rules that the guy has to be on his back and you have to pin the shoulders to the mat that way. It's kind of like, am I supposed to be upset if somebody hits a home run and forgets to touch home and then they're out or something? I mean... Where do we draw the line here? This is where, you know, Gorilla may be falling off a little bit here in 93. And again, I blame it with him being in the proximity to Bruce Pritchard. Pettengill lets us know that an interview with The Undertaker is coming up. And he has a stuffed teddy bear, a little one that is wearing The Undertaker's gear for some reason. Reminds us of the circumstances of the Hacksaw Jim Duggan Shawn Michaels match that had been on Rob. We're going to see the clip of it a little bit later. And also coming up on Wrestling Challenge on this weekend, Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a King of the Ring qualifier against Papa Shango. I don't know why, but that match kind of tickles me. And I kind of want to actually go out of my way to see it. It was actually taped the day after WrestleMania in Phoenix on the Wrestling Challenge taping. So very interesting how they're already doing the King of the Ring qualifiers the day after. But we actually see another one of those from that same taping a little bit later on. By the way, Duggan, of course, won that one because you remember him from the King of the Ring pay-per-view. A special interview with this guy. Well, not, not this guy. The Undertaker, the real one's bigger, taller, and meaner. So we'll talk to The Undertaker, too, and maybe Anthony can borrow his hat. Yo, Anthony! You want that hat? Pettengill getting very annoying with the male pattern baldness jokes that have to, you know, kind of make myself feel better by playing the bumper music for Mania, which, surprise, surprise, I kind of actually like. <laughs> oh, gee, is there, is there any bumper music from a wrestling program that I don't like? Well, you know, I'll, I'll call it when I come across it. Now, up next is a match from Wrestling Challenge from the aforementioned taping in Phoenix. Bob Backlund taking on the narcissist Lex Luger. I mean, this is the one that I would do this episode for. Not Kamala versus Bam Bam, which apparently was the basis of the request. This Phoenix taping, like I said, the day after WrestleMania 9. So it's not like there was an arena in Vegas. They didn't have it at the Thomas and Mac where people could go there. The post-Mania crowd is a different time. There was no We Are Awesome chant at that set of tapings, which was really good because I'm still chafed about four and a half years ago, the post-WrestleMania 31 crowd, you know, stood on the heels of that abortion of a main event with Lesnar versus Reigns where Seth Rollins wins. On that taping in Phoenix on that night, they Smoking Guns made their debut. We actually get a vignette from them later on, so I'll, I'll save my thoughts on them a little bit later. Mr. Perfect won the Intercontinental title against Shawn Michaels. But there was a dusty finish, and they reversed it. And Bill Alfonso was the referee for that one. See, it would have been better if it had been like that ECW tape, Hardcore uh, Volume 2 or whatever the hell it was, where Bill Alfonso and 911 are the referees. Because I don't think uh, 911 would have got pushed around by either Perfect or HBK. And another result on that taping that apparently did not air, otherwise I would have covered this show, Kamala defeated the White Shadow. 
Now, I didn't even know Ken Howard wrestled, but man, was that guy prolific. Perhaps that match may have had a heel turn where either Coolidge or Salami was at ringside accompanying the White Shadow, and they actually told Kamala to turn him over to actually pin him. And that's how Kamala was able to pick up the win in that match. Because this is Challenge, there was a new team for Wrestling Challenge after WrestleMania 9. Jim Ross, who, of course, debuted on the big pay-per-view, and Bobby Heenan are the duo for that program, so they have this match. And we do see, as Lex Luger is coming to the ring, the women of the narcissist, and some of them are booing, some of them are cheering, so you get a healthy mix. But my question about Lex Luger coming into the WWF, as he did at the Royal Rumble, shaking off all that WBF nonsense, is why did he change his hair so much? Like, why didn't he have, like, the feathered hair like he had in the NWA and WCW? It just looked off for whatever reason was he trying to make it look more like for the 90s because the weird thing is it switched back to the way that it was when he went back to wcw are there like wwf and wcw barbers like how how does this work i don't quite get it backland has regular schoolboys haircut and his comeback up to his heel turn is i don't even know like what it was exactly designed for other than Oh, here's Bob Backlund versus this guy in a match that seems like it's out of time and and whatever. But it did give us the 1993 Royal Rumble, which I enjoy from the perspective of that point in the match where Kurt Henning, Lawler, Flair, and Backlund are all in there at the same time. Oh, and Tenryu as well, to throw in a Japanese element. As I said... Now you got Jim Ross on the team, and that can only mean one thing. None of this by God or slobber knocker or any of that other stuff. Of course, Jim Ross is known for one thing. He has to bring up college. It's Bob Backlund, and he's from North Dakota State University, Bobby DeBlanc. Wow. And he was also, you can say wow, for the fact that he was for about six years the WWF champion. North Dakota State? What do you have to do there to graduate? People milk a cow with your left hand? fine institution and they have a great wrestling program oh they certainly do uh tomorrow elmer maybe you can drive the truck and i'll talk to the pig the only two cities in north dakota that i can name off the top of my head are bismarck and fargo and fargo is probably better known for being a movie in fact north dakota state is in fargo which means i want to remake the movie fargo with Bob Backlund as the William H. Macy character slowly descending into madness. I I feel like that's something that would have fit, but the man is over 70 years old now, and the ship has probably sailed. So North Dakota State does actually have some famous alumni other than him. Controversial Minnesota Congresswoman Ihan Omar. Geez, I looked up the pronunciation of that, and I still screwed it up. Alf Clausen, who is known for doing the music on The Simpsons, Former Patriot Steve Nelson, who was a linebacker for, I think, 13 or 14 years in the 70s and 80s. And current Philadelphia Eagles quarterback Carson Wentz also went to North Dakota State, which I forgot about because he's a good quarterback, so you don't really think of him as being from a school that barely, you know, is on the map when it comes to college football. So Backlund is doing his howdy-doody thing where he hops back and forth, and Luger is in there. In his narcissist character, and this is just the weirdest contrast ever. Well, maybe not ever, but it's certainly a sight for sore eyes as Luger turns down the handshake 
And Backlund now takes advantage of his substantial mat wrestling ability advantage over Luger. They go behind into a roll-up, which he does twice, gets a two-count, then goes for a small package, and then gets two. JR calls him Luger, which I, I had thought that they were only going to call him the narcissist, but obviously no. They did not drop the Lex Luger name, which I, I think is for the best because it certainly had some value. Yeah, Vince McMahon did not create Lex Luger, but the, the, ha, there was certainly some value in that name. Sunset Flip gets two for Bob, and it made me think, maybe instead of having him just be a plain white guy who came back in the late 1992 his gimmick would be a guy whose only move is going for pinfalls like he doesn't actually like lock in an arm bar or anything all he does is various moves that lead to a pinning combination as bobby and jr talk about the steel plate in luger's arm so that gimmick is definitely being played up because he's knocking people out left and right Backlund goes up for some corner mount punches, which he actually gives up on. He doesn't lay it in. But to be fair to Bob, from 77 to 83, when he was in his prime, he didn't exactly do that kind of move. So he, he he's kind of like Kamala. He really doesn't know what to do. And Luger is now feuding with Bret Hart because he had attacked the hitman at the WrestleMania brunch or whatever it was uh, that that's mentioned on the WrestleMania 9 telecast. Maybe there's footage of that in like the Coliseum video edition. I don't remember ever seeing it. So and I'm not going to go back and watch WrestleMania 9. I just don't feel like it, okay? But mainly I think he attacked Bret Hart because Bret's a Canadian and Luger deep down in his heart is an All-American. It's just going to take a big extravaganza on July 4th in order for that to come out. Get a cross-corner whip that is reversed. Backlund gets a hip toss, a slam, and a drop kick in that order. Babyface offense number 13, I believe it is. And then he gets Luger up for the big atomic drop. Does not run him across the ring, but Luger does do the thing where he kind of you know moves his legs and flails. And then he goes for an O'Connor roll, Backlund does, and he gets actually kicked out of the ring. So a pretty powerful kick out by Luger. Backlund did not do the full bridge in that move, and I feel like I'm watching the old opens to WWF programming with Backlund doing the O'Connor roll. and I, I half expect kids to start charging the ring again to mob him, but unfortunately, that's just not to be in 1993, as when... Backlund gets it up on the apron. Luger just runs across the ring, hits him with that metal forearm thing, knocks him off the apron, and that is how the narcissist, Lex Luger, gets the victory, advances to the king of the ring via a countout. I mean, you think of Bob Backlund, and Bob is a better worker, I think, than a lot of people might give him credit for because he, he predates the era of hulkamania so he kind of gets written out of history and some people don't like oh he took too much of the match and this kind of stuff and yeah he's probably not as good as rick flair in fact i i feel very confident in saying he's not as good as rick flair but this wasn't even as close to lex luger versus rick flair but then again this is a three minute and 30 second match whatever it was on the i almost said action zone but this is actually mania so <laughs> I mean, I just feel blessed that we were able to have a Bob Backlund versus Lex Luger match. The Conquest. We've got a new champion. The Challenge. My Uncle Dumbo, he's your challenge. 
the championship. Hulk Hogan has won the title for the fifth time. The controversy. My decision is that Hulk Hogan remain champion. On June 13th, the controversy will be settled once and for all. Hulk Hogan, Yokozuna, June 13th only on pay-per-view. Jack Tunney involved in a WWF controversy? No way! Hey, Todd, that's what he's there for. As I said before, he doesn't come out every week and do a 12-minute promo in the center of the ring, making himself the center of attention. He's only there on an ads-needed basis. I mean, I've been as hard on Tunney as anybody. Well, except for Bad News Brown, who pointed out that the way to Jack Tunney's heart is through his balls. <laughs> if there's a critique to be had of Tunney, it's that he had been in office for too long. He should have left after eight years, been like George Washington, who left after two terms, creating the de facto term limits that, of course, FDR had to go and blow up because of his own massive ego. But that that's that's for another time. The Tunney, you get really diminishing returns from him in 94 or 95, you know, the Royal Rumble tie, and so very wishy-washy, in my opinion, and also, there was that picture in the WWF magazine of him taking money from DiBiase, so it just just became totally corrupt at the end. <laughs> the whole story is chronicled right here in the latest issue of WWF magazine. It is the one with Hulk Hogan on the cover. Raise your hands, raise your hands if you're sure. Anything else could be uncivilized. Jesus, Todd, you, the two different brands of deodorant. I mean, he's just trying to cram in his jokes without any regard for if they'd make sense. Sure is completely different from Right Guard. They're not, not the same company. And Todd then goes on to complain when the subscribe card that you would mail in, that you see in all magazines, it falls out of the magazine. And he complains about it. It's like, dude, check out Reader's Digest, for God's sakes. There's one of those things in, like, every five pages that you have to rip out or else you have, like, this weird cardboard thing as you're trying to read it. Anyway, I'm starting to get upset. So why don't I go right to the next match? A can ring qualifier, I guess, between Mr. Perfect and Doink the Clown. Now, this is good, Doink. This is Matt Bourne. In the oddity of this match, with it being a King of the Ring qualifier, well, I'll, I'll get to that after we're done here. So Mr. Perfect and Matt Bourne, as Doink, linked by Portland. They cut their teeth in the Pacific Northwest, so that's definitely a positive. I feel like these two guys would have chemistry with each other. And Perfect was very much, in 1993, start-stop with the push. The beginning of the year, he's red hot. He drives Ric Flair out of the WWF, and then by WrestleMania, he's losing in not a good match to Narcissus Lex Luger, and then has that feud with Shawn Michaels where he gets to watch as Gennetti, Marty Gennetti comes back, wins the Intercontinental title, and then he doesn't get it at SummerSlam. It, it, no wonder why Mr. Perfect lost interest and went back to collecting an insurance policy by the time Survivor Series rolled around. I do wish Kurt Henning had a memoir. I don't think he has any sort of book out, but he's a guy I would have loved to know his insight on things, especially in the 90s where he was just in and out so much. Now, as for Matt Bourne, Evil Doink, Every, everybody loves Evil Doink. Everybody knows that, oh, he was a very good wrestler, but the character work was absolutely top-notch. But I'm only noticing now, and I can't believe I'd never actually seen this before or, or commented or what, but his mullet is coming out of the back of his Doink mask, which I don't know why that made me laugh so much, but 
hey, you know, it's 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 a clown after all. You know, clowns supposed to make you laugh. And Doink attacks on the outside, perfect, not paying attention as he's walking in the rings. He's too busy jabbering with the fans and being friendly. He gets thrown into the ring steps and inside you get a chop in the corner. But then Doink misses a knee drop. And Mr. Perfect, being the ring tactician that he is, immediately goes to work on the leg with which Doink missed the knee drop. By the way, our trio of announcers for this match is Vince McMahon, Jerry Lawler, and Randy Savage. A very interesting trio with uh, Lawler and Savage, uh, the feud in Memphis years earlier. And of course, the USWA coming up a little bit later in 1993. Doink. Gets tossed to the outside, back in, perfect, works the leg a little bit more. And then Henning, he I don't know where this move came from, this odd falling headbutt to the chest. I, I'm not sure what, what exactly that was. As Jerry Lawler takes the opportunity to say that Hulk Hogan's world, having the world title is a crime. For which I was expecting him to go on a rant like, it's not the unified world heavyweight title the way my title is. But hey, you know, I guess you can't have everything. Also, Vince probably would have slapped him or something. As we go to a commercial break with Perfect firmly in control. And when we come back, Perfect is laid out on the outside of the ring with no explanation whatsoever. So I guess we're just going to have to accept that. And maybe part of this match was cut out, which... I'm pretty certain happened given, well, where we're going. As Doink goes up to the top rope and does a double axe handle to the floor. So Randy Savage on commentary has to sit there and watch that. But we get actually no comment from him on that on that move, basically. I don't want to say it was stolen, but, I mean, if Savage isn't wrestling that much, I mean, it'd be okay high spot for somebody to do. As we now, because Doink, and with it being early, 1993, or the first half of 1993. He had his WrestleMania match with Crush, and I thought that that issue was settled, but instead, Vince wants to hear from Crush in our inset promo, but he's going to get a little bit more than he bargained for. And Crush, there's no doubt that you're looking forward to... Hey, wait a minute. Do it. How can you be here there at the same time? It's an illusion. What? What is going on here? Wait just a minute. He just told you. What do you mean what's going on? It's an illusion. Illusion, Michael. Mm. Trick is something a whore does for money. Or cocaine. Hey, look, I'm not going to speculate on what drugs Matt Bourne might have been into. All I know is that he's gone by the end of 1993 and the WWF was much poorer for it. Although, that being said, I didn't have to actually work with the guy. But... As a professional wrestler in the ring, in terms of his psychology, he's very, very smart. And he proves it by working the back of Mr. Perfect, showing that he has done his homework. And as Vince makes a reference to Siegfried and Roy and Doink because of, I guess, the magic tricks. The Siegfried and Roy Tiger incident that basically ended their run at the Mirage happened the week before I moved to Las Vegas. So once I got there... The big hilarious sign on the Mirage was still advertising their show, but was gone, never to return, and 267 people got laid off. That's kind of the thing that gets forgotten in all that, like, oh, ha, 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 he had a stroke, or the tiger mauled him, or whatever it was that happened. Like, a lot of people lost their job because of that. Although they probably caught on somewhere else, now that I think about it. A snap-ish suplex by Doink. I I don't know if it was a pure snap suplex, but it, it was close enough quite honestly, as Vince says that he is the consummate wrestler, Doink is. 
Whenever Vince uses the word consummate, I, I'm always paying attention because one of my all-time favorite Vince McMahon commentary lines from the October 1987 Saturday Night's main event where Sika is referred to as a – Vince says this man is a consummate savage. Like a consummate savage. I love that line so much. As we get another axe handle to the top of the head by Doink. Apparently, the whole axe handle thing must be a weird callback to his big Josh day. He says a lumberjack back in World Championship Wrestling. But his offense overall is just excellent. And so is Mr. Perfect. So that's why this match has the potential to be so enjoyable. And in fact, it is. For 1993 WWF, outside of Brett, this might be as good as it gets since Shawn Michaels would basically become a lazy fat guy as the year went along. As Irish Whip Doink misses on a left hand and Perfect scores with a small package, a very close two count. And then we get a battle for a backslide. <laughs> Once again, Perfect gets the two count out of it. But Vince McMahon, as we head towards the mid-1990s, and I, I've spoken up for Vince as a commentator, particularly in his early days where he was very serious, even in the 80s with Jesse Ventura. And as you roll into the early 90s, he's still pretty good. But by the time 93 to 96 rolls around, the he got him, he got him, Vince. Oh, so annoying. Back and forth, perfect wraps up. Now, maybe that wasn't the most over-the-top one he ever did, but I'd be curious to know if there was a specific incident that people remember where he said, one, two, three, he got him, he got him, he got him, where it was incredibly over-the-top for effect. It had to have been 1996. Maybe I should just watch a bunch of 1996 footage, but if if somebody knows, please speak up on Twitter at GFL and Town Pod, because I would like to know where I might be able to find that, as Perfect goes for an O'Connor roll. Which, as I understand it, if you have it as sushi, it's cabbage, cod, and with a little bit of Irish bacon uh, on top of it. I I think that's what an O'Connor roll is. Anyway, Doink kind of looks like he forgets to kick out or doesn't do enough to kind of kick Perfect off. Who then follows up, Perfect does, with a back suplex, letting all Japan pro wrestling know that, yeah, he could come in there and work anytime he wants, but... You know, it might be a little complicated with the insurance policy and all that sort of stuff. We get a couple, an exchange of slaps as Doink reverses an Irish whip, puts his head down, a carnal mistake for a ring veteran, especially against somebody like Mr. Perfect, who in his highest profile match of 1993 won the bout because he's able to lock in his finisher when the guy puts his head down. And sure enough here, he locks in the Perfect Plex, but the freaking bell rings before he even gets a chance to do it. So you don't even get the one, two, and then the bell rings, and you're like, oh, well, he would have won if he had gotten one more second. Oh, no. We ring the bell before he could even get the guy over for the perfect place. And the crowd is very unhappy because this is a time limit draw. And according to the historywwe.com, Graham Cawthon's site, This match went 6 minutes and 39 seconds. Now, maybe some of it was cut out because of the commercial break that I mentioned before, but that seems awfully short. But it's not like 
they're going to not have either guy in the King of the Ring. Obviously, Mr. Perfect has the great match with Bret Hart in the second round or the semifinal of the King of the Ring. So how do you resolve this issue of a draw for a King of the Ring qualifying match? Well, you just run the damn match again and hope that it doesn't end in a draw. This originally had aired on the May 1st edition of Superstars. The rematch would air on the May 16th edition of Wrestling Challenge, which also ended in a time limit draw. That one, they were given 7 minutes and 3 seconds, according to HistoryWWE.com. But then finally, this all culminates on Monday Night Raw, because that's quickly becoming the flagship show for the World Wrestling Federation. May 24th edition, 15 minutes, so it goes it's longer than the two previous matches combined if those t- if the times given are accurate and Mr. Perfect finally prevails in a 15-minute match. And that now actually makes me want to watch the May 24th, 1993 edition of Monday Night Raw. You've got to want it. No, no, no. That was promotional consideration for Ico Pro, which is what Tatanka was pushing there. Although, if you just listen to the audio, you'd think that he was practicing pickup lines to use in a bar later on. I mean, who, who really knows? And also, promotional consideration paid for by G.I. Joe action figures, which I know nothing about from 1993. Because I pretty much stop about 1987-88 for that sort of stuff. And... Finally, to bring us back to a sense of normalcy, because the Macho Man is still around, but not being used to full effect, we got Slim Jim ads. Tim! Gotta hear beef, gotta hear bite, need a little excitement, step into a Slim Jim, oh yeah! I saw a thing earlier this year about Macho Man Slim Jim figures coming out. I don't know exactly what became of it. It's one of those things where I see the article announcing it, and then I don't really see any sort of follow-up. So we're back to Todd in the Control Center studio for WWF Mania. says that the rematch will be coming along for Mr. Perfect versus Doink, and he asks now for two debuting wrestlers are coming into the WWF, so he asks his mother to set two plates for two additional plates for them for Mother's Day the next day. Now, there's a problem with that. I mean, you're inviting these strange people over to your house for Mother's Day, which doesn't make any sense, especially since it's the smoking guns that he's talking about, Billy and Bart. And we're going to hear one of their vignettes just now. Like, yes, these are the kind of people I want to bring into my home, guys who are twirling guns, carrying firearms, and I don't know who they are. It's pretty insane that he's even suggesting this possibility. It's right up there with the end of the Goonies when Chunk is like, Ah, Sloth, you're going to live with us now. Never mind the fact that his parents should be pissed at him for running off and getting lost for presumably about 24 hours and they can't find him. But anyway, Billy and Bart, I did not know that they had little vignettes. And, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure, uh, how, how I feel about these. here's Billy. You know, ever since we signed with the WWF, all we've been hearing about is trouble. Trouble from the likes of the Head Shrinkers, Money Incorporated, and the Beverly Brothers. 
And you know, there's nothing like a little scrap to get a man's attention. So me and Bart figure that we're going to go to the WWF and look for a little tag team excitement. And when the smoke clears, they'll go down. Right. There's a lot of issues that I could talk about here, and I don't get why this isn't brought up in discussion of really, really strange vignettes done in WWF history. First of all, Bart Gunn talks first, but that's th- that's the least of our things. The fact that, yes, out of, out of the two, we want Bart to do the first introductions for this team. Billy Gunn just looks a little strange in the cowboy garb, like he's not completely comfortable with what's going on. Almost feels like he's doing a village people sort of thing. It may, he he might feel like he's doing a gay for pay sort of deal. Not that not that there's anything wrong with that specifically, but you could have picked another character if you don't feel comfortable in the cowboy thing. Although I guess not, because Vince probably wanted to see him in the cowboy stuff. But all the casual gunplay, twirling it around the finger, and shots fired. Like, there are a lot a lot of trouble in the WWF. The Money, Inc., the Head Shrinkers. And the gunshots. Like, this is crazy. What are, they, what are they, coming into the promotion to actually just shoot guys? Is this finally going to follow up on that great Jesse Ventura line from SummerSlam 89. What are you saying, Shivani? You can shoot a guy if he's outside the ring, as long as he's outside the ring. Now we got guys packing guns. And <laughs> I don't I don't know why this doesn't get talked about as something weird. So why don't we just go right into the next match from an earlier Monday Night Raw, the May 2nd Raw. Shawn Michaels, the Intercontinental Champion, defending against Hacksaw Jim Duggan. We got two guys who came into the WWF in 1987. So you might say that they're linked in that way, even if their in-ring styles are completely diametrically opposed. And also how Bill Watts would feel about each of these guys. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Bill Watts was a fan. Shawn Michaels, not so much. But back to the 87 thing. They are connected from events that occurred in the middle of that year. Everybody knows about Hacksaw Jim Duggan getting busted in New Jersey with the Iron Sheik and cocaine being found in the car. Duggan gets fired, has to do his penance for three or four months, eventually gets his job back. But in the aftermath of that, it's very embarrassing for the WWF that Vince had decided, well, all right, we're cracking down on drugs here. We're going to test for cocaine. And some guys got suspended for that, but... It was not only a crackdown on drugs, it was also unruly behavior. Basically, don't be a dick and get yourself in the paper and give us more bad publicity. So the Midnight Rockers, as they were known in the AWA, are brought in in June of 87. And what do they do? They tear up a hotel room or a bar or something to that effect. Jimmy Jack Funk was involved with it somehow. But at the end of the day, Shawn Michaels and Mario Gennetti end up getting fired from their first run. They have to go away for a full year before they can come back after they've done their penance. So three times as long as Jim Duggan, who who's getting busted in the first place, kicked off the crackdown that got the Midnight Rockers busted. So that's what this feud must be all about, not the Intercontinental title, because I do not consider Jim Duggan a valid contender for that. And it's actually joint in progress as Duggan does the body slam that he would do where he would pick up a guy and... Almost sort of like an airplane spin where he would twirl around. 
Shawn Michaels not grabbing his nutsack the same way he did to Bob Backlund in an earlier episode. He goes right into the three-point stance, and he hits the big clothesline, but Shawn goes tumbling through the ropes and out to the floor. There's no diesel in Shawn's corner to this point. So he's just a man on his own. He doesn't have Sherry anymore, as as I mentioned earlier in the show. That, that's been done for months. So what does he do? Well, he just takes up and picks up and leaves because he's been watching a lot of Money, Inc. matches lately and figures, well, if they can just walk out and keep their title, why don't I do the same thing? But Duggan goes out and gets him, hits, hits him, drags him back to ringside, hits a clothesline over the guardrail. I'll give Michaels credit. Pretty good bump for the year 1993, not something that you would see every day. So Duggan ends up winning via a countout, which in 1993 WWF should prompt the Steiners to come down to the ring, balloons to come down from the ceiling, and everybody celebrates. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen in this case, although I do wish that the Steiners had come down because now somebody has given 1993 Jim Duggan a live microphone, and by God, he wants to speak his piece. a lot of things right but by god they got this wrong there ain't no way i can beat a man from pillar to post and when he knows i'm going to take him down he takes a run for it what are you going to do about it Tommy? i'm telling you i tell all these folks out here i'm talking Shawn michaels hackstar jim duggan i'm not leaving I get another piece of you, tough guy. Take everything he says at face value. He's actually correct in that the guy just ran away from the match, so obviously it might be a good idea going forward to set up a lumberjack match to kind of take that out of play at the very least. But Duggan gets really upset here, and he takes some chairs. And by chairs, I don't mean like folding chairs and throw them into the ring. He was throwing like... The kind that you would put in, like, a hotel ballroom for, like, some sort of conference. Like, one of those chairs. It's got, like, a padded seat or whatever that does not fold up. So he's just kind of chucking those into the ring. I don't understand why he's doing that. And when he goes inside, picks up one of the chairs, and he sits down facing away from the hard camera. It's kind of a sit-in strike. So he doesn't know how to work to the hard camera. That's three years, four years in NXT. Let's make it. So, yes, they would eventually have a rematch on the live Raw a little bit later in the month of May. As for Jim Duggan, long-time listeners to Greetings from Allentown know that I've mentioned this a couple of times, that where I live, the town manager is named Jim Duggan. Well, I am here to tell you no more because he actually resigned his position recently. In fact, just last week, uh, under a, a bit of a cloud, uh, I don't know if it was like a full-blown scandal, but let's read from the story. After more than five years as town manager, James Duggan has resigned in wake of questions over potential bidding improprieties, a fire department in upheaval, and past issues with the police department. It's like, well, he did have a feud with Big Boss Man at one time. Yes, I know it's a prison guard, but he was playing really more of a police character. After a certain point. But Duggan, he's actually not done here. He's not just going to sit in the ring. He apparently, at this time, the commissioner of the WWF is Sergeant Slaughter. That did not just start in 1997. And I think Duggan, I don't know if there's any impropriety with this, but he may have leveraged his friendship with Slaughter to get what he wants. 
Well, not very often does old hacksaw Jim Duggan get an opportunity to talk to the president. But Sergeant Slaughter came out here and told me Jack Tunney was on the telephone. So I ran out there and I said, Mr. Tunney, it's not fair. It's not right. Shawn Michaels can run away from me. You know what Mr. Tunney said to me? Get my butt. He said, Hacksaw, Sean can run, but he can't hide because next week, baby, you got him in a lumberjack match for the Intercontinental title. Tough guy. I just realized how funny it is that I said I do not consider 1993 Hacksaw Jim Duggan to be a contender to the Intercontinental title. And then in 1994, he goes to WCW and wins the United States title, like literally right away. So we do get a retort from Shawn Michaels. The most interesting part of this interview isn't waiting to see if he will say, I got news for you, but... It's the fact that Bobby Heenan is the one conducting this interview. It's kind of interesting. You know, can you believe this? Have you ever, in the history of the World Wrestling Federation, seen an Intercontinental Champion treated this way? I mean, Jack Tunney, I'm the World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champion. And now Hacksaw Jim Duggan somehow gets me into a lumberjack match. I mean, come on, he protests, he calls Jack Tunney at home. I don't even have his home phone number, and I'm the Intercontinental Champion. You see, that's you know, what I don't like. It's not fair. If he's got Tony's home phone number, he's, you're going to put the title up next week right here on Monday Night Raw. I don't like the sound of this. No, neither do I. I mean, who knows who he's got up his sleeve? Plus, not to mention all the people he's going to have around the ring, all his buddies. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I got, I got, I got a couple numbers of myself. I got a couple friends out there. But you know something? Hacksaw Jim Duggan, one way or another, this thing's staying with me. Let me know one thing. I know you must have something up your sleeve. What do you have planned for a Hacksaw Jim Duggan? Well, Bob, I'm not going to tell you. I can fix that. I'm not sure why they didn't utilize Heenan more in that role as the backstage interviewer. I thought he could have been pretty good at it if they had let him do it a little bit more. Anyway, Sean, I would say that Honky Tonk Man was treated worse than you. So if you really want to get historical, that's the way I feel about that. As they go back to Todd Pettengill, and I cannot stress this enough, I hate the way he is sitting in the chair. Because he's wearing the shorts with, you know, the, the sneakers and the white socks that are a little bit higher than they should be fashion-wise for 1993. It's like, all I can see is, like, his hairy legs. It's like, that's not what I want to see when I'm turning on the television on Saturday morning. I just hate it. I mean, he's just a complete zero on this show for me. But luckily, he does toss it to Mean Gene Oakland, who puts over Hacksaw Jim Duggan for a second. But it's time to get down to the business of the King of the Ring report. And everybody knows the Survivor Series and the Royal Rumble theme. And WrestleMania as well. I'm I'm, I'm going to spare you the music on that one. But I, King of the Ring apparently, first go-around, had its own music. say not bad not as iconic as those other ones but it could fit in well say in a sports movie as the score for a dramatic scene at the end but anyway for the king of the ring we don't really have much of a card because the qualifiers are still going on we only have two people in the match and we have hulk hogan against yokozuna for the WWF title, a rather memorable match given the way that Hulk Hogan went out. Yes, he did two months worth of house shows, tag matches with Beefcake against DiBiase and IRS, but this is pretty much the end. Losing to the leg drop 
They had photographer with the fire and all that. But Hogan and fire doesn't really seem to work out all that well. At least after a certain point in time. Worked great in that Desert Storm match against Slaughter at MSG where he threw a perfect fireball. Anything after that, you know, didn't quite work out. I'm thinking Halloween Havoc 1998 for that one. So as I said, there's only two people in the King of the Ring tournament to this point is Bret Hart, who was automatically granted entry given that he was a former world champion, and Lex Luger, the narcissist, who qualified his way in earlier on this program. And we're going to hear from Lex, and I'm going to say, his character of the narcissist seems like kind of, you know, a modified version of his 89 heel character from the NWA, but modified in a less good way. Now that I've knocked out my first opponent in the qualifying round of the King of the Ring tournament, literally, I'm simply awaiting my next victim. But Bret Hart, oh, never mind. You've probably already had enough of me at the WrestleMania brunch. It's not quite breakfast. It's not quite lunch, but it comes with a slice of cantaloupe at the end. You don't get completely what you would at breakfast, but you get a good meal. It does warrant mentioning that you can have a great steak dinner and you can have a lovely sandwich for lunch, yes. But honestly, deep down to me, there's nothing quite as good as a really, really well-made brunch. you think from watching the TV at this point that the King of the Ring final, all signs are pointing towards a final of Lex Luger versus Bret Hart. There's not to be because... Lex Luger is going to be doing something else shortly after the King of the Ring, around that July 4th period, and Bret Hart's going to be moving on to a battle with another king, Jerry Lawler, which, uh, no no disappointment there. Might have been dragged on a little too long since it's still going on in SummerSlam 95, but uh, I, I enjoyed most of it, especially the cracks that Lawler could get in on the Hart family. Upcoming qualifying matches are announced. Papa Shango taking on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Duggan would prevail in that one. Razor Ramon versus El Matador, Tito Santana. Just seems like it's a shame that Scott Hall didn't become, you know, a really good professional wrestler until Tito had, you know, kind of faded off into the into the sunset, really around that 1991 time frame. And Bam Bam Bigelow taking on Typhoon in a battle of the big men. Of course, Bam Bam would go on and face Brett in the final of the King of the Ring, which honestly... To me, works better than the Lex Luger thing because you put over Brett as beating this big guy in his third match of the night. Brett's third match of the night. So it kind of puts a little bit more oomph before on it. And Gene Oakland, I I mentioned All-American Wrestling and how maybe I should have just done an All-American from 1993. Well, he closes the report segment by ragging on his partner from All-American, The Brain. You know, I have never seen a scramble like this since Bobby the Brain Heenan was forced into picking up a dinner cab when we were on the road with All-American Wrestling. Only a couple more months for that duo on All-American Wrestling. I mean, both of them are gone by the end of 1993, Gene, at the end of the summer. And then Heenan is forced to co-host with Joe Fowler, who is brought in for a very short period of time. Back to the control room, where Todd Pettengill has decided to call his mother on the air. And when it comes to the comedic bits on this show, this is probably as good as it got for Todd on this program. There we go. Ring, ring, ring. Takes her a while. Hello, Mom. Hi, it's Todd. 
No. Todd. Not Rod, Mom. Todd. Pettengill. Can I bring anything tomorrow for dinner? Um, bring my teeth, Rod. Okay, Mom, fine. Can I do anything special for you? I want to see my favorite wrestler. Who is it, Mom? Mr. Hughes. Mr. Hughes? <laughs> <laughs> hey, she's my mom. Roll it. For a second, I thought that Todd's mother was Ann Ramsey from the Goonies and throw Mama from the train, but I, I, I don't think the voice necessarily lines up. What an odd sense of humor that woman must have. Like, oh, I want to see Mr. Hughes. Like, who asks to see a Mr. Hughes match? I mean, honestly, he has a WWF run on three separate occasions, and they're all so brief that they're pretty much forgettable. This match, he's facing off against Mark Ming. And it's from the Mar- May 2nd edition of Wrestling Challenge. It's it's kind of funny how Mr. Hughes, the outfit that he's wearing, and yes, it carried over from WCW, but it perfectly aligns with the Big Boss Man's WCW outfit as Big Bubba Rogers. And they're, they're, they seem to be making mention of managers vying for Mr. Hughes to be in their stable, which it just seems crazy to me. He's never there long enough to actually do it. Although, I guess Hughes could say that the future is so bright for him, he's got to wear shades. And yes, he actually wrestles with the sunglasses on. Two quick right hands and a big-ass clothesline. A big man clothesline, let's call it. But then Ming ducks a clothesline and then runs right into a big boot. So I'd mention managers vying for Mr. Hughes' services for whatever reason. Now, even though he is clearly a heel... And the Reverend, Reverend Slick is now a babyface. Slick throws his hat into the ring because, well, he's not wearing a hat in the inset promo. You know, Mr. Hughes, I've always prided myself in my ability to recognize raw talent. And you know, there's so much about you, your self-confidence, your self-esteem, but it's just headed in the wrong direction. You need to hook up with the Reverend. I can help you channel those energies into a positive light. Well, this isn't exactly the battle for the Macho Man with the managers vying for him in 85 or the battle for Bam Bam in 1987 as well, which Slick was actually a part of. But I guess when when you do that type of angle, it's maybe a signal of how strong your promotion is at the time. 85 went well. 87 went pretty well. 93, not so good because... (laughs) It's 1993 WWF, and nothing seems to work when they want it to. And also, Mr. Hughes is barely even there. And he finishes Ming off by hitting the boss man slam on him. Like, what the hell? Like, is this some sort of weird cosplay? I I don't understand it. But Mr. Hughes does stick around. He does make it to the king of the ring. And he loses to Mr. Perfect in a battle of the misters. So I think he should lose the name. He should just be known as Hughes from that point forward. It's Mr. Perfect versus Mr. Hughes is a match out of the New York Times style guide. Mom, she did well. Businesswoman, board chairman, grandmother, cooker of mashed potatoes. The waiter stayed on in furniture. Wood seemed to suit him. In fact, he took over the factory two years later when dad passed away. 
last episode of The Wonder Years aired four days after this edition of WWF Mania. And I gotta say, when they wrap it up near the end, it really kind of gives me a good old kick in the feels. Especially the part where they say, oh yeah, dad dies two years from now. Because they're at the July 4th thing. And it just really kind of bums me out. And that episode is kind of a roller coaster ride. One minute, he, he's boning Winnie Cooper in that barn, and then we find out later, oh yeah, they did not get together, which I think was the proper ending to that show. Although I do think that Jason Hervey's character, Wayne, should have gone into professional wrestling. A little wink and a nod to his involvement in 1991 WCW. So Todd in the studio, who's wearing Bobby Heenan's sweet-ass All-American Wrestling red satin jacket, like... You want to talk about collectibles, I don't have much of an interest in buying a lot of retro wrestling merchandise, but a red satin jacket for All-American Wrestling, well, I feel like the bidding on that would be a little bit out of control. So up, finally, on this show, the interview with The Undertaker that we were promised quite some time ago, or at least so it feels, towards the beginning of the program. This is from the May 1st edition of Superstars, so one week before, and Who's doing the platform interviews at this point? Because we don't have a talk show. There's no Brother Love. There's no Piper's Pit. There's none of that. It's Ray Rougeau who is doing this. I'm not sure he's the greatest interviewer in the world, but he's a guy who can just ask the questions and hold out the microphone, and he does it competently enough. Now, despite being chloroformed at WrestleMania 9, which is a remarkable start to that sentence, Ray Rougeau says that The Undertaker is unstoppable but that doesn't make any sense because he can be stopped C- chloroform is his kryptonite oh yes not only is my undertaker unstoppable he is the most powerful entity in the world wrestling federation in fact he is the most I've grown tired of your futile attempts at trying to destroy what cannot be destroyed. Not only will I draw power from the souls of the deceased, I will draw power from the souls of the living. It's that six foot nine fired up white meat baby face from Death Valley, California, The Undertaker. Well, you know, I guess there's a different side of him facing Giant Gonzalez because, you know, the matches ain't going to be that good. Gonzalez, you must enter the world of the dark side. The dark side where only The Undertaker survives. The dark side where you, Gonzalez will be made to suffer. You don't know the power of the dark side. When you think of where The Undertaker went later in the 90s, and I'm talking the feud with Kane here that brings in all the elements of his family dysfunction and Paul Bearer and your mother's a whore and all that stuff, it it is very reminiscent of Star Wars because 
when it comes down to it, Star Wars, the whole series of movies, is basically about some serious family dysfunction with Vader, Luke Skywalker, and the rest of the gang. And I would say that maybe the Undertaker's feud with Giant Gonzalez is kind of like one of those early Star Wars where it's like the Trade Congress uh, debating things and everybody is just kind of unhappy because they want Star Wars to be something different than that. Anyway, they go back to the studio to wrap up. And Jim Ross just happens to be there, new host of Wrestling Challenge. I think he's there to plug that. Reminded me, AEW, if you're listening... Hire Todd Pettengill. That would really be something. Have him host the update segment. It's like, everybody loves retro nostalgia. Why don't we bring Pettengill in? Although he's probably still working for that radio station in upstate New York. What are you doing here? What's going on? I'm looking for the weasel. You seen him? Jim Ross, new commentator on Wrestling Challenge. I never see the weasel. He always hides from me. First of all, he owes me money. Typical. But we've got a great show this weekend. Big, big matchup. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Papa Shango, and the King of the Ring qualifying matchup. It's going to be terrific. Bam. It's going to be great. I gotta find a weasel. All right. Money. Let me know if you find him. Todd lets us know that the Smoking Guns will be debuting next week on WWF Mania. And boy, I wish I was reviewing that show since they probably came to the ring with those firearms and shot guys outside the ring since we know that it's legal and all. But that is pretty much a wrap for WWF Mania for May 8th, 1993. I do my usual podcast plugs I do need to mention that I have taped appearances on other podcasts that'll be coming up be on the lookout for freak out drive-in on the Jenny position feed hosted by Jennifer Smith we took a look at the movie the village from 2004 that M. Night Shyamalan vehicle which veered off the road crashed and went into a ravine and went to the bottom and Ted Kennedy swam to shore and didn't call anybody for help because we all just wanted M. Night Shyamalan to die. Anyway, kind of wanted to see how how things would go with that picture watching it a second time and be on the lookout for that. The name of the feed is the Jenny Position name of the show is Freak Out Drive-In. Also, The Great Debate hosted by Andy Atherton. And I was on there debating a variety of different subjects, uh, starting with sports and then into pop culture in the second half of the show. I had, I think, a pretty good idea of what the XFL might be able to do differently this time. So do check that out. That'll be on the Place to Be Nation pop feed. Now on the Our Vantage Point podcast, Joe Morata and Michael Quinn, episode 150 this week. Congratulations to them. And they are looking at an episode of Thunder in Paradise. Uh, I don't know which episode it is, but it's got Jim Neidhart in a tug of war. So (laughs) I guess that's something. And we also got the wrestling podcast about nothing with Mike Crockett, Brian Fury, and Brawler Malonis. And they're playing actually one from their BDA radio days when they were doing two shows a week. And with Brian being a little busy, you know, doing the whole Valerie Harper bit. The, the episode that's airing is one with regard to weird wrestling venues that they have been in, which include Fenway Park and, on the flip side of things, a used car lot, which feels like a fitting location for certain wrestling promotions and shows. And on the Sportscasters with my buddy Steve Bennett, he's taped an interview with Mark Beach of the Players' Tribune, who has got a book 
on the history of the Green Bay Packers coming out. So that actually ties in nicely to my next segment. No, not YouTube comment theater, of course, because even though this has been on YouTube, this episode of WWF Mania, hardly anybody's watched it. And only one person saw fit, so I can't do a YouTube comment theater. But what I can do is... For week seven in the National Football League, another edition of Vinny Vegas Corner. Went two and one last week, now ten and eight on the season. The way I look at it is if you win two out of three, you're going to win money. So three is a nice number to go on here. Now, a little bit different from Keno, where I like to play four spot, or at least that's what I've been told by my Keno expert friends. Anyway, in the NFL this week, we got the Cincinnati Bengals are hosting Jacksonville Jaguars, and I don't know why the hell I am going to even remotely take even a sliver of interest in this game. Jacksonville just off trading. I don't know if he's their best player, Jalen Ramsey, cornerback. He's not the best cornerback in the NFL, but he's certainly in the top 10 at a contract dispute. And they granted his wish, trading him to the Los Angeles Rams for two first-round picks and a fourth-round pick somewhere down the road. That's going to not bode well or sit well with those in the Jacksonville locker room. It's not like they're completely out of the playoff race. They are 2-4, and four, but they're in the AFC, so 2-4 and four has you right in the thick of things. Now, I know the Bengals are 0-6, but they don't strike me as a team that's going to go 0-16. They strike me maybe as a 2-14, kind of deal with them. I don't even know who their head coach is, but I said that they were going to win the AFC North on... Looking forward, looking back, also hosted by Andy Atherton a couple months ago because I said some weird team's going to win a division. Well, that's not going to happen, but they are going to win at least two or three games and maybe even four or five. Who knows? So the Cincinnati Bengals are going to take advantage of the malaise striking the Jacksonville Jaguars this week with the trade of one of their better players. And I'm going to take the Bengals getting three points at home against Jacksonville. Now, up in Buffalo... This is one of the most bizarre things that I've seen in a very long time. The Buffalo Bills hosting the Miami Dolphins, and the Dolphins are pretty pathetic. Yes, they have not been good this entire year, but the the Buffalo Bills are favored by 17 points over anybody is hysterical. But it's not only that, the over-under opened at 38, which... It's an insanely low number when you have a point spread of 17 because ordinarily the team favored by 17, you have to trust that offense to put up the points to to do that. Now, with Miami's offense being kind of pathetic, you'd say, well, Buffalo may only have to score 17 or 20 points to cover in this game. Well, Miami has decided to make a change at quarterback. They've gone from Josh Rosen to Ryan Fitzpatrick. So Fitzpatrick... Yes, it's going to be the Ryan Fitzpatrick revenge game, and at least he's going to cover that 17-point spread. But poor Josh Rosen. I don't think I've seen a Jewish athlete treated this badly since Munich 72. But I'm going to take the Dolphins getting 17 points in Buffalo, and I do it reluctantly. Yes, I've started out by picking Cincinnati and Miami, two winless teams. And then finally, I'm going to pick an actual good game. Philadelphia Eagles are at the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas seems to be... Tuning out their coach a little bit. I don't. I'm not one of those body language guys. But what's his face? Jason Garrett is holding out his hand for a high five, and they're just ignoring him. 
I still believe in the Philadelphia Eagles, and I'm not just saying that because I have a substantial Philadelphia audience who listens to this podcast. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but I do like the Eagles to cover the three-point spread in Dallas. So to round up, Cincinnati Bengals getting three at home against Jacksonville. Miami Dolphins getting 17 at Buffalo. And Philadelphia Eagles getting three at Dallas. Vinny Vegas Corner with seven. I am so pleased that more Mid-South wrestling is being added to the WWE Network covering that late 85 period and into 86. It's something that I want to watch on my own and potentially cover in an episode of Greetings from Allentown. Also looking at earlier Mid-South episodes, maybe due for next week, but do stay tuned to social media, particularly on my Twitter, at GFAllentownPod, and do Give me a follow there. I'll Once I determine what I'm going to do, I, I will let you know there first. But if you could, could you please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts for me? Because it provides what is known as social proof that you listen to and enjoy this podcast. If you if you take 30 seconds out of your day to do that, that sends the message to like, oh yeah, this is one worth listening to. So just get the word out there. Any way you can. It's something I enjoy doing. I, I mean, doing this every single Thursday now for oh, two and a half years now. This is episode 138. I can't believe I've gotten to this point. Although, episode 138 isn't exactly the greatest milestone in the world. Unless you're The Simpsons because they did that 138th episode spectacular. And maybe I should have done something along those lines. But <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's an episode of WWF Mania, and that's that's pretty good. Although, the comedic bits from Todd Pettengill, I think, were certainly lacking in this one. I do thank you so much for listening, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Yeah.